Hello and welcome to the programme. In a week where there's been an increase in violence in the Middle East, Israel has intensified its assaults on Gaza as Palestinian militants continue to fire rockets into Israel on the fifth day of hostilities. Some 119 people have been killed in Gaza and eight have died in Israel since fighting began on Monday. Shortly, we'll be going to Jerusalem, where we'll hear from Rabbi David Rosen. He's a former chief rabbi of Ireland and currently serves as the American Jewish Committee's International Director of Interreligious Affairs. The Reverend Dr. Julian Hamilton also joins our discussion. He's currently serving as the Methodist chaplain to Trinity College Dublin. And do you remember where you were on May 13th, 1981, when news came from Rome of an assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II? Immediately, we have seen uh, the Holy Father had been wounded, and and he was practically uh, on the bottom of the the car. And I have seen myself, uh, the ambulance, a white ambulance, very rapidly leaving the Vatican. Uh, It was carrying the Holy Father uh, to an hospital. I have been told that the hospital would be the Ospedale Gemelli. Later, I'll talk with Father Michael Collins, who remembers the event well. But first, to the Middle East, and the past five days have seen an increase in violence and tension in Israel and Gaza. In a moment, the Reverend Dr Julian Hamilton will join us. He's the founder of Space to Breathe. For the last seven years, they've been working towards getting together groups of Christian, Jewish and Muslim young adults. More than 150 young adults have taken part in trips to the Middle East and Ireland with the express concern of creating human engagement. But first, I've been speaking with Rabbi David Rosen in Jerusalem. I began by asking him, is this a religious conflict? Fundamentally, no. Fundamentally, it's a territorial conflict between two national liberation movements, uh, the Palestinian National Liberation Movement and the Jewish National Liberation Movement, which is what Zionism is, essentially to create a homeland for the Jewish people. And unfortunately, they're struggling over the same piece of real estate. But because this conflict involves people with identities and because those identities, as in most conflicts, not least of all similarly in Ireland, are rooted within cultural and religious traditions, these cultures and religions are manipulated, exploited, both, if you like, to reinforce the claims of each side and very often to denigrate those of the other side. Given the work that you do uh, with interfaith, I'm curious again to this extent about does the solution possibly then lie with with religious communities? That's a wonderful question, because I think part of the failure of initiatives by diplomats and politicians, such as the Oslo Accords, to bring about an end to the conflict here, part of the reason for the failure has been the complete disregard for the religious dimension and for people's spiritual psychological attachments to this place. And basically, you're only dealing with the surface and not with a profound area of people's psyche. So I think that it's really important to engage religion. I don't want religion to replace politics or diplomats. I think that would be very unwise. But I think it is essential that they are engaged because if you don't engage the moderate religious leaders who represent the vast majority, then not only are you opening it up for the extremists to assume center stage. You're giving people the impression that religion is by definition inimical to peaceful relations and mutual respect. So for politicians and, uh, and diplomats to do that is what, what Socrates calls akrasia, that's working against your best interests. 
you're there in Jerusalem, and I suppose when I was thinking about this conversation with you today, there, there are some people who are extremely well informed in the situation that's happening in that part of the world, and others who, who only hear what they hear on the news. This particular uh, level of unrest, and in fact the, the violence that's occurred, is slightly different in that what's happened prior to this. The Israeli Jews, the Israeli Arabs, is that the, the, the new aspect to it? Uh, that's yes that is a very distressing additional dimension to it and it's part of a vicious cycle of one uh, act of violence setting off another and igniting various tinderboxes combustible uh, situations that are brewing underneath the surface and this um, distrust and frustration on both sides, but primarily in terms of the Arab-Israeli citizens, which is both related to recent political developments within Israel, but also has to do with, if you like, a sense of historic marginalization felt by certain sections. I mean, of course, it would be terribly misrepresentative of our, on our part to suggest that this represents the whole, or even the majority, or even anything near, even a slender majority of, uh, of Arabs in Israel, let alone of Jews on the part, the vast majority of whom are loyal citizens of the state who want to live with mutual respect and peace with one another. But there's enough frustration to be able to ignite the tinderbox and lead to this cycle of violence internally. And that, if you like, is fueled further by the, mm, by the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And uh, very often Hamas becomes a kind of a surrogate for frustrations on the part of these, also the Israeli Arab population. Well, the Reverend Dr. Julian Hamilton is also with us on this call. Jules, the comparisons, I suppose, that we might draw between what's happening uh, currently in Israel uh, and Gaza and that happened here on the island of Ireland. Well, good evening, Michael. Uh, and good evening, Rabbi David. It's, it's a pleasure to be in a conversation. I feel very much an outsider, in no way an expert. One of the first things that I thought as a Belfast boy myself, uh, upon engaging some of the issues and the realities in the Holy Land was, oh my goodness, I, I, I lived the first 25 years of my life or so in, in a land that was in bitter conflict with itself where um, bombing and shooting was was daily fair in the news every day and you know being brought up like that and having that be your your daily diet for the news it certainly it creates a background so i, I was I, I think i was naturally always drawn to conflict to look uh, at israel and palestine and to and to see the conflict and I think oh my goodness it's the same as here religion is not the reason for it, but by goodness is religion an excuse for it. You know, we're talking geopolitical, sociological problems that have this incredible cloak of religion. And so, yeah, I, I, I went in first thinking this is going to be just the same. You walk the land for a little while and you realize just how different the conflicts are. And then, Michael, I had the interesting experience of getting to know more people and hearing more stories over a few years of being involved and coming back to a place of, do you know what, actually? There's maybe a lot more similarities between this island uh, and the, the Middle East than, than I would have first considered. Whenever you scratch mm. below the surface, you still see geopolitical, sociological, financial um, concerns at the bottom of a, as the roots of a lot of the conflict. Well, if you look at, for example, the work that was done by Glenn Cree and the peace and reconciliation process that are out there, there seems to have been a common enough thread, which was 
humanizing everybody back in the process when dehumanization has actually taken place. Um, Rabbi Rosen, you mentioned the idea of, of the moderates uh, having, having an influence on this. How do you actually get people back to, to the substantive issues that are under discussion and strip out uh, the animosity between groups of people? Well, what of course doesn't get attention in the media, and understandably again, is the enormous amount of initiatives that bring Arabs and Jews, both in Israel and Palestinians and Israelis together. And part, if you like, of the encouraging response has been seen here over the last day or two. Yesterday, mass gatherings across the country of people with slogans saying, we refuse to be enemies, Arabs and Jews, Muslims, Jews and Christians were involved in that, even though the Christian population, of course, is very tiny. And uh, there have been uh, rabbis and imams coming together, demonstrative. Actually, there are visual symbols as well as that. So the Abraham Initiatives is an umbrella organization uh, which works in this field, and it lists over 200 different organizations working in the field of Jewish-Arab reconciliation, collaboration, advocacy, uh, education, all these areas. So there, there's some wonderful activity going on. The problem is, as we know so well also from the Irish context, is it requires much more energy to build than it does to destroy. You only need a very little spark to be able to bring about a conflagration, and it seems as if all the hard work you've been doing has gone up in flames overnight. And the most important thing is for those of us who work in reconciliation and outreach to one another is not to allow this such conflagration to dampen our spirits, but to redound our efforts and to work harder to bring people together, mutual respect and understanding, and to use modern technology where people can't come together. So at least they can see one another and hear one another. Jules? Well, well my, my, my mind is going through the Good Friday Agreement and what an incredible political advance that it was but we have not had peace in on this island for the for the, the last three decades we have had moments of reconciliation uh, we have had many many groups of people trying to to bring us and them together if you like and i've been involved in those since i started you know being a youth worker some 25 years ago it's always been part of the work that i've participated in uh, but we have not yet had peace in our hearts for want of a more tacky uh, phrase but but certainly We've had a level of political peace, which at times in Ireland has come and gone, and again in these days is, is particularly fraught uh, with party leaders changing and with the political hands around Ireland pushing a lot of what's going on politically. All of those situations mean that systemically it's very difficult to create positions where, where people can feel at peace. So. It has to be people first. Um, the things that Rabbi Rosen was talking about, all those initiatives, they are all absolutely vital. Parity of esteem in those places, genuine reconciliation uh, means, you know, giving things up. Uh, genuine peace means that, that, that people sit at a table uh, with a level playing field. And both in Israel and Palestine and both here in Ireland, those things are very, very difficult to get. Rabbi Rosen, there are outside influences that we have to take into account in this as well. Uh, the role of, you know, the, the United Nations, the role of the United States, of Iran. Well, indeed, uh, certainly with regards to the um, Iranian presence, I mean, Iran not only funds Hezbollah, but also has been a significant supporter of Hamas. 
that indicates, of course, a much bigger geopolitical context of where that also led, if you like, to certain what I would say were positive steps in terms of the outreach from the Gulf states to Israel as a result, unfortunately, of my enemy's enemy being my friend. I mean, it's not the best basis for advancing mutual respect, but sometimes even through negative impulses, certain positive things can come about. So, of course, geopolitical interests do manipulate the situation, but that's not a reason for us to disengage. On the contrary, that's a reason for us to be all the more engaged, but it's also a reason for there to be more engagement of international bodies that seek a very positive solution to this situation. That was the reason that the quartet was created. I don't know really what the quartet has done until now, real significance, but now is a great opportunity to be able to be a turn, as we say in Hebrew, lemons into lemonade, take the bitter and turn it into the sweet, take this situation to bring about a ceasefire, bring the parties together and try to find a roadmap for constructive way out with the religious dimension respected. In other words, let us have a declaration on Jerusalem, the people which we articulate our respect for each one's attachments to Jerusalem and call on our adherents not to harm the attachments or the presence of the others so that we can live in a city which is cherished and loved by all Christians, Muslims and Jews and all that hold it dear in the world. Well, if there's one thing we've learned with conflicts around the world, it's when the process of dehumanizing people uh, begins, conflict continues. Is, is this back again to the possible solution then? Uh, I'm, I'm coming back to you, Julian, on that one, if I can, about you brought people over there and they've met each other and they've recognized human beings in the process. If I can work backwards, Michael, yesterday we had one of the other leaders of the Space to Breathe program uh, contact me and say we have to do something. Uh, because it's hard to be so far away and watch what's happening on the news. And so we just sent out uh, a, a call, if you like, on our on our WhatsApp and, and Facebook groups. And and yesterday we managed to, to, to get uh, just 10 of us together. Uh, we, we have run, the Space Debrief program gets together British and Irish, Palestinian and Israeli young adults, uh, students, and it is all about human engagement of the other. Yesterday, whenever you have people jumping on a call, just simply to say, my heart is breaking because I know the people and I know the place. And that was the overriding thing that people wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk politics. They didn't uh, want to fight. Uh, the people who attended the call just wanted to say, my heart is breaking over what's happening. And, and yesterday we, we, we did have uh, Jewish, Muslim and, and Christians did together in that call as, as, as friends. And Rabbi Rosen, a final word with you. you are, you're there living in the middle of it. You're in Jerusalem. You have family in Tel Aviv. Um, there's a very strong possibility that this story will slip back down the news uh, running order uh, as the days continue. Uh, what's your hope that will happen? Yes, indeed. Well, I hope that my my daughter, who is in a shelter at the moment under the siege of Tel Aviv, and my uh, son-in-law's parents who have hardly come out because they're under rocket attacks continuously in Ashdod and of course all those in Gaza who are under attacks and who are living in fear of their lives that all this will come to an end as soon as possible and that there will be some sanity that will prevail and that we will learn to uh, to move forward in our respect for one another, 
but I should add, part of this tragedy and this cycle of violence is also the result of a complete vacuum of responsible leadership on either side. And uh, we, um, the, in the Palestinian side, elections were cancelled, and Hamas has used this situation to exploit it to its advantage. In Israel, we don't have a government, and this uh, violent situation has been used to scupper the possibility of an alternative, more peaceful approach. And therefore, um, this is exploited by populism as conflict and fear are exploited by populism in so many different places of our world. We can only pray and, as I say, redound our efforts of all those that seek peace and wish to pursue it so that one day the morning after will come as indeed all conflicts in the end must end. Nothing exists forever and we just have to create as much sanity as possible for the morning after. Rabbi David Rosen and the Reverend Dr. Julian Hamilton, thank you both for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Next this evening, we remember back to this week in 1981. It was a week that saw the hijacking of an Aer Lingus jet, where one of the conditions of the hijacker was the release of the third secret of Fatima, which wasn't done until the year 2000. In the north of Ireland, the death was announced of the hunger striker Bobby Sands, and in Rome, on May 13th, a 23-year-old Turkish man, Ali Aka, fired four shots, one of which hit John Paul II in the abdomen, narrowly missing vital organs, and the other hit the Pope's left hand. News back, and first that sensational attempt to murder the Pope inside the Vatican at 17 minutes past four this evening. The first public announcement of the attack on the pontiff came over Vatican radio, shortly after an ambulance carrying Pope John Paul had left St Peter's Square. From the RTE archives there, the news of the shooting of Pope John Paul II on May 13, 1981. Well, priest and biographer Father Michael Collins was in Rome at the time and joins me now from his home in Dublin. Michael, welcome back to The Leap of Faith. What are your recollections of that time? Well, probably there were two dates connected. Uh, 1981 is 40 years ago since the assassination attempt took place in John Paul II, as he was beginning the general audience in St. Peter's Square. And at 17 minutes past five, uh, a Turkish gunman took aim at him and he was coming along into the square. He's actually entering into the square. And he always in those days, because he attracted enormous crowds, uh, he'd go around the square. Prior to that, these audiences were held in an audience hall. There was no great problem. Very rarely out in the open, but he he always attracted these huge crowds. And if you think he'd only been elected a couple of years earlier in um, October of 1978. So he was a new entity, if you like. We remember he came to Ireland in 79, the year after his election. So he's still a huge crowd. So as he was beginning his um, drive around in the white uh, mobile, the Jeep or the, the Pope mobile, as it used to be called. Um, this chap, uh, uh, a Turkish gunman, took aim at him and he fired a number of shots and um, a couple of them penetrated the Pope and his stomach and he was rushed off to the Gemelli Hospital where they'd got this kind of emergency room. They never thought they'd use it, of course, but eventually somebody was going to attack the Pope and the gunman shot. Everybody, of course, panicked. The Pope was whizzed off to the Gemelli and uh, he was there in 11 minutes, which going through Roman traffic was pretty impressive. He was operated on by Dr. Crucetti at the time. He survived the operation and he came out, but he was a shadow of himself for several months. And in fact, people thought, oh, he's not going to continue. He's, he's going to fade away. But he made a remarkable recovery because physically he was a very strong man. 
and more or less within about nine months, he was back in on his feet and back into action. So that was one thing. But the curious connection that he made with the date was the 13th of May 1917, because he recorded that was the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And that's a feast day celebrated in Portugal, in fact, by many Catholics throughout the world. And it records um, a time when three cousins, Lucia de Santos and her two cousins, Francesco and Jacinta, claimed that they saw uh, a lady, a woman, they didn't give great detail about it, who appeared and recited the rosary, more or less hovering on top of a, of a tree. And um, this led to a belief, a popular belief, that this was Mary and afterwards uh, Lucia, who later on became a nun, she claimed this was Mary. And curiously, there were three apparently secrets revealed during that time. Um, secrets was the worst word they could have used. Prophecies, uh, views of the future, whatever you want to call it. But the third one is the one that really got people's attention. And um, I remember shortly before the Pope's ar arrival um, at that audience, there was a, a, an attempt by somebody to extract the third secret of Fatima from the Vatican. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was actually a couple of days beforehand on the 2nd of May 1981, when an Aer Lingus was aircraft was? was was hijacked on its way to London, with one of the requirements being the declaration of the third secret of Fatima. That's right. And it turned out to be a former monk, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So that that's it. So there's also this great secret of the third, the third secret of Fatima. And it was finally revealed in 2000. And it, it was um, not as dramatic, perhaps, as it would have seemed. It's all about... Uh, a bishop dressed in white who was mounting a hill, being followed by others and being persecuted and then perhaps being killed. But it was vague, you know, and it had to be interpreted. I remember Cardinal Ratzinger, who subsequently became Benedict XVI, he tried to give a gloss or an interpretation on it. So there was that. Um, and I remember John Paul II, who did an extraordinary devotion to Mary, the mother of God. He said, well, on that occasion, uh, one hand pulled the trigger and the other hand guided the bullet. And in fact, he went to Fatima uh, a year later after the assassination attempt on the 13th of May, and he presented the bullet which had penetrated him and gave it to the uh, authorities who were looking after the sanctuary. And they inserted it into a little crown which sits atop a statue of Our Lady of Fatima. So he had a very, very strong devotion, and he believed that if he was spared this assassination attempt, there must be some reason for it. Well, Michael Collins, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you. Finally this evening, Sunday May 23rd will be the 6th anniversary of the papal encyclical Laudate Si. Journalist Catherine Pepinster wrote recently in the Tablet magazine how the Catholic Church in England and Wales are taking the spirit of the Pope's declaration on the environment to heart with a spirit of a different kind. She joined me from her home where she told me more about their investment in green energy. Yes, the, the bishops in England and Wales have, have taken Laudato Si extremely seriously and for some time. And somewhat to many people's surprise, it turns out that the Catholic Church is the biggest user of green energy in this country, um, which, well, was, was news to me. Um, and what, what they've attempted to do is find a way of becoming... Uh, users of green energy in their churches, their church halls and their presbyteries. So all the dioceses have come together to do this. They have a, a company which buys the energy, which I can go into a bit more if you like. 
and um, uh, they're also now looking into bringing Catholic schools into this as well. So they'll become an even bigger user of green energy. And in the midst of all this, they have uh, a link now to a gin distillery through their efforts to use green gas and electricity. We have to find out a little bit more about this because the puns are so rife in this about, well, shall we say a holy spirit? Indeed. And uh, given it's gin, I, I'm very tempted to say that Mother's Ruin is helping fuel Holy Mother Church. But there is a serious side to this, of course. So what happens is that the, the Catholic Church tells the big operator of gas in, in the UK, British Gas, that it wants green energy. So they say, they say to, to this gas organisation, this is the amount of gas we want to use and pay for, and they pay more for it than, than usual gas. Meanwhile, the, uh, the big gas organization have organizations that supply green gas. This is usually a byproduct of biomethane. And one of the suppliers of green gas, which provides enough gas for the uh, Catholic Church's needs, is a gin distillery in Scotland. So the gin distillery puts its green gas into the system and the Catholic Church is taking gas out. And so the green gas certification system has linked them up and they've got a certificate that they can wave about saying they get their green gas from this gin distillery in Scotland. That makes up 78% of their gas use. And they've also found another method to sort of be as green as possible to the rest of the supply and a hundred percent of their electricity is is green um, and and when you think that they're now talking about trying to get all the catholic schools involved in this at all they're going to become an even bigger user of green energy um it it's it's worth around 15 million pounds this this um this supply so the numbers are not insignificant and no. it isn't either something that's quite new because this organisation that you mentioned, the Interdiocesan Fuel Management Company, they're 20 years on the go. Yes, yeah, so they've been building this up and they really are, I can I could tell, they really are in, enthused about it now. Um, I think, you know, there's a few younger bishops coming through and um, and they, re they really get it they're, they're, and they are very keen to do as much as they as they can to to become green so they, the bishops had a plenary meeting recently where they asked people from shell and they asked uh, people from from industry and investment bodies to come and talk to them and you can imagine if you add all the the dioceses together they have a certain amount of clout in the investment world as well and they're saying we want we want to now know what different companies are doing to become more green and therefore should we keep our investments with those companies um that they made the point that they're not just looking at green existing companies they want to know about greening so what businesses investment bodies are doing to become more green and and that's where they're going to keep their money or they're going to take it away so you know they're they're, they're, they're looking at it from a number of sides not not just their own consumption of energy, but also their, their investments. So 
that that can be influential too. Dare I say, it's just the tonic. Catherine Peppenster, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you, Michael. And that's your Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila Callahan. Our broadcast coordinator is Louise Kerr-Ross. From them and from me, Michael Cummin. Good night. If you'd like to hear that programme again or recommend it to a friend, it's on this Sunday morning at half past ten on RTE Radio 1 Extra or anytime on RTE Radio Player. RTE Radio 1.